Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and infertility. We're a weekly radio show podcast, and to make sure that you automatically hear about each episode, subscribe to our show at either iTunes or on the radio page of our website, creatingafamily.org slash radio. Today's show will be about prenatal exposures uh, to alcohol and drugs. I am Dawn Davenport, the director of Creating a Family. We're a nonprofit providing education and support for both adoption and infertility. And you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Cancer is, can often mean the loss of fertility, but there are things that you can do. It doesn't have to mean the loss of your fertility. If you are a loved one or facing cancer, you may be eligible for no-cost medications through Faring's Heartbeat Program. To learn more, you can visit their website, heartbeatprogram.com, or talk to your oncologist or your reproductive endocrinologist if you're seeing one uh, and get information about it as well. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our twice-weekly e-newsletters. We let you know about the latest developments in adoption and infertility, as well as the upcoming week's blog and show topic. We would love to have you as part of our group, so please sign up for our newsletter uh, at any page of creatingafamily.org on the upper left-hand side, uh, and we will, we will, um, it will, you will be added once you uh, put your name in there. I blog on topics of interest to those involved with either adoption or infertility, usually three times a week. My blog yesterday is an interesting one. Uh, It's concerning the recent NBC News, Today Show, and Reuters joint investigation into what they're calling rehoming of children uh, after an adoption fails. Uh, it was a uh, interesting report. I've taken criticism, or I'm criti- critical of some aspects of the report. It has been a, an amazingly popular blog right now. There's a huge discussion going on, and we would love to have you join us uh, and have your your input. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support of our gold sponsors, including a new gold sponsor, all Blessings International Adoption Agency, with offices in uh, and adoption with offices uh, in the United States, and as well as adoption programs in Congo, Haiti, Hong Kong, Latvia, Taiwan, and El Salvador. El Salvador. They also have a domestic infant program, as well as they place children from the U.S. foster care. We also have Independent Adoption Center, whose mission is to provide open adoption placement and counseling to birth and adoptive families. They work with families in 49 states and are fully licensed in California, Indiana, Georgia, North Carolina, Texas, Connecticut, and New York. As you just heard, Creating a Family is a nonprofit, and one of the ways we pay our bills is through our wonderful sponsors, who believe in our mission of bringing you unbiased, accurate information and supporting you on whatever your path is to achieving parenthood. One way you could help us is by supporting those who support us. You just heard a few about a few of our gold 
sponsors, but we also have other sponsors. So if you're looking for an adoption agency or an adoption attorney or an adoption doctor, uh, one of the uh, please make your first stop the Creating a Family database which you can find on the service provider page of our site. You can search by locations, where they have programs, humanitarian aid, how long they've been in operation, just a whole host of uh, criteria that we think are important when choosing. And by using these databases, you support those who support us. And we thank you. On today's Creating a Family show, we'll be talking about evaluating the risk of prenatal alcohol and drug exposure. This is a very difficult task many adoptive parents face. Our guest to help us figure some of this out uh, is Dr. Ira Chasnoff. He is one of the nation's leading researchers on long-term effects of prenatal alcohol and drug exposure, and he is author of a new book on the subject, The Mystery of Risk. Dr. Chasnoff is president of the Children's Research Triangle and a professor of clinical pediatrics at the University of Illinois College of Medicine in Chicago. Welcome, Dr. Chasnoff, to Creating a Family. Thanks. Glad to be here. Well, what are the most common drugs that are being abused now by pregnant women? And and feel free to include alcohol in that as well. Well, yeah, certainly alcohol has to be included because it is by far the most commonly uh, used uh, substance. Uh, We have done national studies and find that in general populations of women enrolled in prenatal care, about 25% are used, have used some kind of alcohol during the pregnancy. Would that uh, include one glass of wine, uh, or would that include something more than that? No, that would include any alcohol use at all, so 25%. Now, about if you look at only heavy users, uh, it's about 12% which is still a significant number, yeah. uh, but you know, one of the issues we have to talk about is how much alcohol is too much. Yeah, well, we're going to come to that. Okay, so we're, we're talking, but, but before we get to that, mm-hmm. um, okay, so we know that alcohol is by far the most okay. used, I should say, used, and since it's in pregnancy, I would say abused substance. Mm-hmm. Um, other than alcohol, um, are there other what we would more commonly classify as drugs, either legal sure. or illegal? Yeah, uh, well, the other thing you'd have to consider is tobacco, and that runs anywhere from about 15 to 20%. And what most people think about when they are concerned about exposures, uh, they think of the illegal drugs. Uh, The rate of marijuana use during pregnancy really varies across the country, but averages around 6 to 8%. And then the drugs you hear about all the time, cocaine, methamphetamine, heroin, the rates are actually about 1% to 2%, so they're quite low. Uh, they do attract a lot of the attention because the immediate effects are so severe when the baby's a newborn. Uh, but in reality, the long-term impact, uh, one, the, the drug we most are concerned about is alcohol. You know, it is such, I've said this before, it, it seems to be so, I don't know the correct word, perhaps ironic, that the the one legal drug is the one that has the, the, the greatest uh, teratogenic impact uh, uh, throughout a uh, throughout a child's life. Um, I, just to, before we leave the topic of tobacco, I think a lot of people do mm-hmm. not think about tobacco as being an issue. What uh, are the uh, risk factors uh, for a for a child whose mother smoked during pregnancy? Well, the risk comes from 
several directions. First of all, tobacco use during the pregnancy does reduce the blood supply across the placenta as the blood flows from the mother to the fetus. And so the baby doesn't get as much blood as he normally would when the mother is smoking so that the most common complication we see is low birth weight. Uh, And low birth weight is defined as any baby that is born below 5 pounds 8 ounces. And we know that that's a marker for significant risk for long-term difficulties. The other thing is that children whose mothers have smoked during pregnancy uh, have higher rates of asthma, uh, other kinds of, of infections like ear infections. And then there's the issue of secondhand smoke. We know if a woman was smoking during pregnancy, it's likely that she's smoking after the pregnancy also. And so the baby is exposed to secondhand smoke, which puts him at very high risk for health complications. Um, Although in the case of adoption, if the adoptive parents don't smoke, would they not expect to see the ear infections and asthma? Is that, I guess what I'm asking is, is the mm-hmm. increased rate of asthma and ear infections due to the exposure post-birth or is it due to prenatal exposure? It's all of the above. So even prenatal exposure with no postnatal exposure still puts the baby, at, at the child, at long-term risk. Uh, The other issue is if the mother has smoked during pregnancy, it puts the baby at significantly higher risk for crib death, sudden infant death syndrome, Uh, so that uh, there are multiple ways in which tobacco use during pregnancy can affect the child long term. Interesting. Okay. I just wanted to touch on that because a lot of people don't even think of tobacco as being a a drug. All right. Then we're going to kind of – uh, let's talk about alcohol first, since that's obviously okay. the most common one. So we know that across the board, about 25% of women have have had some alcohol, um, uh, or will admit to, I think maybe a more accurate way to say that, to some alcohol mm-hmm. use during mm-hmm. pregnancy. Um, I, I can't help but wonder if it may be higher simply because uh, if we include the time uh, prior to a woman realizing she is pregnant. Um and I think a lot of women, when they're reporting to their doctor, might not include that time. Uh, well, go ahead. Yeah, we our studies are designed to pick up that group. So actually, the part of you know when we talk to women about this, the question is: in the month before you knew you were pregnant, oh, okay. how much beer, et cetera, did you have? So it does capture that time before she knew she was pregnant, and it's an important point because in that time before you know you were pregnant, you can affect the child's, the fetus's brain development by uh, using alcohol, even before you knew you were pregnant. Right. Well, the two things I wanted to ask were, one, um, the quantity, and the second one would be the timing in the pregnancy. Does that matter? Since you just brought that up, let's go ahead and talk about that. From a timing in the pregnancy, um, does do you see different impacts on children depending upon when in the pregnancy the uh, mother uh, drank? Yes. Uh, and let's start at the end of pregnancy, the third trimester, and work backwards because that's the easiest okay. way to do this. Uh, in the third trimester, which is the last three months of pregnancy, there are many physicians who tell their patients, 
okay, you can drink now because all the organs are formed, everything is fine. But actually, the most rapid period of brain growth in all of human development occurs during the third trimester and the first year after birth. So during that third trimester is when the brain is growing so rapidly. And what alcohol during the third trimester does is it inhibits the migration of brain cells. So its main effect is on uh, is on the development of the cortex, the outer layer of the brain, and this is directly related to IQ. So third trimester drinking can have significant impact on long-term cognitive functioning, intellectual development of the child. So third trimester is not a safe time to be drinking. Okay. When, so, yeah, that's the third trimester, and it primarily will affect the child's uh, IQ, bottom line. Correct. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're drinking early in pregnancy, first and second trimesters, then the substructures of the brain are primarily affected. And the way that we regulate and control our behaviors and respond to the world around us, much of that is mediated through uh, through the limbic system, which is a substructure of the brain. It's the inner core of the brain. And that the the limbic system is what helps you interpret information, uh, remember information, use information, and use early in pregnancy, as early as you know one to two weeks after conception, can affect the development of that limbic system. So children whose mothers are using early in pregnancy and find out they're pregnant and stop using, those children can still be affected, and they can have a variety of difficulties, uh, including difficulty with memory, difficulties with abstract thinking, with uh, kind of planning and completing tasks. So those children uh, often look dysregulated or are disorganized in the way they approach work and, and other tasks as they get older. You know, I um, I think it was probably a guest on this show one time said something that, that really stuck with me, and that was that the best way to determine uh, what a woman did in the early stages of pregnancy is to ask about lifestyle pre-pregnancy. Um, would you agree with that? So in other words, when you're trying to de- decide uh, if a child has been exposed uh, and the mother uh, in the latter part of pregnancy is not drinking. Um, would that be a good indicator? Uh, if, if indeed that would, if if you were able to get that information, which you might not be able to. Well, actually, yes, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, we've done a lot of work and research in, you know, how do you, ask, what kind of questions do you ask? And we did some studies, and we asked women. Uh, in the month before you knew you were pregnant, how much beer, how much wine, how much liquor did you drink? And then we also asked them, in the month before you were pregnant, how much beer, how much wine, how much liquor? And what we found, now this is called normalizing the question. When you say, in the month before you knew you were pregnant, you get much more accurate information than if you say, in the month before you were pregnant. 
because what you've done is you've given the woman an out. She says, oh, yeah, before I knew I was pregnant, I was drinking. You know, once I found out I was pregnant, oh, of course, I stopped drinking right away. So, you know, those subtle changes in language can have a real effect on what kind of, you know, the truthfulness of the answer that you get. So the best way to ask is in the month before you knew you were pregnant, how many cigarettes were you smoking? In the month before you knew you were pregnant, how much beer, how much wine, how much liquor? And I keep noticing that you you actually break it down by saying beer, wine, and liquor. Is that is that important mm. to not just say drinking but to specify and include beer and wine? Absolutely. You have to know the area the woman came from. First of all, in the United States, most people do not consider beer or wine to be a form of alcohol. So when you say, how much alcohol did you drink, they're going to think to hard liquor. So you have to break it down. Now, when we do our work in Louisiana, we have to say, how much beer, how much wine, how much liquor, how many daiquiris did you drink? Because daiquiris (laughs) are like mother's milk, but no one really thinks about daiquiris as being a form of alcohol. When you work with adolescents, if you're working with a, a young lady you know, who has gotten pregnant, wants to place her child for adoption, uh, and she's an adolescent, you have to say in the month before you knew you were pregnant, how, my, how many wine coolers, how much hard lemonade. Because, see, those are, those are marketed, those are forms of alcohol that are marketed to teens, and teens don't consider them alcohol at all. But they're 5% alcohol. Right, yeah, absolutely. Uh, fascinating. That, that's really interesting. By the way, I was born and raised in New Orleans, so I'm just saying I oh. understand that. <laughs> that's a daiquiri yeah, question. Yeah, I saw that. You should be. How many hurricanes did you have? <laughs> that's right, yeah. that's right. Yeah, there you, you go. You have to be very specific. Yeah, but I do. I hear. I hear the point exactly. That you, you yeah. absolutely have to be specific. All right. So, if alcohol consumption early in pregnancy affects more of, as you said, the substructure, the things that would ultimately affect uh, uh, memory, um, abstract thinking, higher level thinking, planning. I would think right. uh, uh, impulse control as well. Right. Right. Okay. Those and so ultimately, it's going to affect learning and behavior. But realistically, if a woman is drinking in the latter part of her pregnancy, wouldn't it be likely to think she was also drinking in the beginning of her pregnancy? Sure. Yes. You're going to rarely get women. We've published studies that have looked at that and uh, the differences in what the children look like. Now, see, here's one of here's one of the things that people get confused about, and it, it gets to. And I do hope we're going to talk about, you know, how much alcohol is too much. We we need to get to that, but. You know, a lot of people say, well, if the baby just looks fine, you know, I've heard, you know, I looked on the Internet, fetal alcohol syndrome and the face, you know, the the child's face The stigmata of FAS, right. Mm -hmm. Yes, right. Well, the reality is, is that in order for the face to be affected, there's a very narrow window in the first, early second trimester, and we don't know exactly when it is. But in animal studies, for example... When you give pregnant rats uh, alcohol on days one through six or days nine and beyond, the baby rat's faces look normal. But if you give the pregnant rat alcohol on day seven or eight, you get a baby rat with 
the face of fetal alcohol syndrome. So see, there's a very narrow window in there in which the face is affected. So and I that's get a lot early of in the first care. trimester, did you say? I missed that part. That, did you say it was? Well, in, in, in rats, it's day seven or eight after conception. Mm-hmm. We don't know exactly when that narrow window occurs. It's probably over a period of a week or so, sometime in the first trimester. But to pinpoint it, I couldn't tell you exactly when that is. But the point is just because the child looks normal and has mm-hmm. a normal face doesn't mean he has not been affected by alcohol. We get that a lot, um, in, in particularly in international adoption, where people have yeah. pictures of the children and Absolutely. are desperate to try to determine um, how how impacted this child might be. Uh, unfortunately, it's all we don't have a lot to go on. In domestic adoption, there are the questions that we can ask, and we're going to come to that in a minute. Uh, mm-hmm. But let's go. Uh, let's talk first now about quantity. Okay. You know, everybody wants a magic answer, and right now in the news, and it's been uh, it's been in headlines in newspapers. It's been on Good Morning America. You know, it's all about this new book by Emily Oster. I think I'm pronouncing her name correctly. She's an economist who was pregnant and decided to go and look for herself and decide how much alcohol. She looks at several things during pregnancy, but she looks at alcohol consumption during pregnancy. And in reading the data, she came to the conclusion that it's safe to drink a glass of alcohol uh, you know, several times a week during the pregnancy. And I think she, at one point she says uh, a glass of wine. I read it a while back now. I don't remember. But a glass of wine a day is fine. Um, the difficulty with that is that it's not just how much alcohol you drink. There are other factors. For example, the pattern of drinking. Is it, are you drinking every day or are you a binge drinker? Binge drinking is defined as four or more drinks at one sitting. And the binge drinking is by far more dangerous because you do reach higher peak blood alcohol levels. So the pattern of drinking is important. The other issue is that is timing, which we've talked about a little bit. The other is the genetics of the fetus. And we've published articles that look at twins whose mothers have drunk alcohol during pregnancy. And we have one of the twins is uh, has fetal alcohol syndrome or is affected severely by alcohol, and the other twin is normal or only mildly affected. Now, there's a scientific name for that. It's called discordant teratogenesis. And I'm just showing off, so you don't have to remember that. But <laughs> oh, it impressed me. That worked. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> Sounds great. But what that means is that each each fetus, now these, these are you know fraternal twins, each one was exposed to the same amount of alcohol in the same pattern at the same time during pregnancy, but one of the twins is genetically more vulnerable to the effects of alcohol than the other. So... That's why we can't turn to any one woman and say, here's how much alcohol you can safely drink, because we don't know the genetics of the fetus and the genetic vulnerability. Well, and the size of the woman matters as well, because how much alcohol and and what she's had to eat and everything, wouldn't that impact how much alcohol would get into her uh, into her blood system and then and ultimately thus into the uh, fetus's uh, blood system? That's correct. And it's... um, 
it's also her own genetics. How well does she metabolize alcohol? Because you can look at racial and ethnic differences, and in some races and ethnicities, uh, the liver enzymes are not at the same level as they are, for example, in Western European Caucasians. And so alcohol is metabolized more slowly, and so more alcohol is passed across the placenta to the fetus. So there are so many other factors besides just how much a woman drinks that affect how severely the child is affected. So, yes, there are some, and Dr. Oster, and she's a Ph.D. economist, not a physician, uh, talks about, well, there are women that drink and their babies are fine, so, you know, anybody can drink. But, But the point is there are so many other factors that affect that can affect how severely the child's affected, that there's no predicting. And that's what it makes it so hard for adoptive parents. They may get a history from a woman, yes, yes, you know, she did drink during pregnancy, but it was only a little bit and, you know, the kind of stories we get. Uh, and they end up three or four years later in our clinic with a child who is having significant problems. Mm-hmm. And I suppose and so, vice versa could happen as well, which is makes it even all the harder. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You are listening to Creating a Family. Today we're talking about prenatal alcohol and drug exposure. Creating a Family has the largest adoption communities on the social networks, and we would love to have you join us. On Twitter, you can find us at, me personally, at Dawn Davenport One, or the organization at Creating a Family, all one word. On Facebook, there are three ways to connect with us. Again, me, Dawn.Davenport1. You can also like our Creating a Family Facebook page or join the Creating a Family Facebook support group. The, either the Facebook page or the support group can be found by typing in the words Creating a Family in the Facebook search box, and both will pop up. You can join the group and uh, like the page. Um, uh, Dr. Chasnoff, uh, I should have mentioned that our guest today is Dr. Ira Chasnoff. He is one of the leading uh, uh, researchers in the U.S. on the long-term effects of prenatal alcohol and drug exposure, and he has a new book on this subject, The Mystery of Risk. Now, one of the things that we I'd, I'd like to touch on is something that you alluded to earlier, and that is uh, adoptive parents, either because they might make the decision not to adopt the child or they want to know what they're getting into so that they can best prepare the child are wanting to know the risks when they are looking at either a referral or they're talking uh, or looking at a birth mother match, either talking with the birth mother or talking with an agency, the, uh, the not birth mother at that point, she's the mom, the expectant woman, um, are talking to her through the agency. Um the international adoptive parents uh, are often are wanting to rely heavily on the facial features, and, and you've talked about that being problematic because the facial features are not necessarily reflective. Uh, is it possible, uh, let me ask this question, for a child to have some of the facial features of um, uh, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And and by the way, everyone, you can go to our web to, to get more information on what and actually to have pictures, to find pictures on what uh, the what we're speaking of, the facial features. You can go to our website, 
creatingafamily.org. Hover over the word adoption, which is on the blue horizontal menu. A drop-down menu appears. Click on resources and go to fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Uh, and you will get all this information there. Is it possible for a child to have the facial features that we uh, identify as a child who's been exposed prenatally to alcohol, but yet not have the uh, uh, the, have the brain be significantly impacted. In other words, the mom just drank during that week, uh, that narrow window of a week, and then stopped drinking uh, because she then knew she was pregnant or for whatever other reason. Uh, so is it a guarantee that the child's going to be impacted? Um, no. There's. You mentioned fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. With, within the whole spectrum, of FASD, there are several actual diagnoses, one of which is ARBD, alcohol-related birth defects. And that refers to those children who have the facial features but have no neurological or developmental consequences. Their brain is fine. Now, in my entire career, Mm -hmm. I've seen one child like that. Exactly. So I would say that is extremely rare. But it does occur. So you can get a child with the facial features but and normal, you know, neurodevelopmental, neurocognitive functioning, but it's very rare. Right. Now, what you You're have not going to gonna hang your hat on that one. I mean, that's No, no, no. Easy. I would be yeah. very careful. If I saw a child with the facial features, I would back off. But mm-hmm. now you have to be careful because, for example, a woman who has a seizure disorder and takes Dilantin, can have the the child can have the exact same facial features as FAS. Now again, you probably should know if the mother took Dilantin or not, but just be aware there are other things that could look like FAS, especially something yeah. like Dilantin. Okay. The other problem with especially international adoptions, but you get it with the domestic adoptions too, is genetics. I mean, what did the mother and father look like? Um you know, oh, so there yeah. could, you know, so so there, there are a lot of issues there. But in general, if you see a child with the facies of FAS, uh, you pretty much have to assume that there mm-hmm. has been effects on the brain. Brain damage has occurred. All right. Yeah. What else can? Uh, and I'm dividing this because the international adoptive parents are in a different. Uh, situation, and we're going to talk in a moment about domestic okay. parents. But for international, uh, we've got the uh, the facial features, uh, although there are a lot of problems with that, um, not the least of which that the child can be impacted and not have it. Also, quite frankly, uh, very young children, uh, often these the facial features become more prominent as the child ages. So we, we know that we have problems associated with uh, just relying on the the look of the child. What else mm-hmm. would be warning signs that people would uh, hear and think, okay, this this is probably an indicator that there this child might this child's mother this child might be impacted by alcohol. Okay, well, especially this gets very difficult for for international adoption. Um, first of all, growth patterns. Birth weight is if a child has fetal alcohol syndrome or is significantly affected by alcohol exposure, birth weight usually will be below 5 pounds, 8 ounces, 2,500 grams. However, with international adoptions, nutrition Mm -hmm. plays a big role. 
so that it may be the child is low birth weight just because of nutritional problems. Mm-hmm. A better measure is head circumference. Um, and in our books, we have uh, growth charts that look at the, you know, normal head circumference. And head circumference, which is, you know, when you measure how round the head is, um, the average head circumference are, for babies pretty much internationally is about 35 centimeters at term. And so any and even with poor nutrition, usually head growth is spared because head growth reflects brain growth. If you have a child whose brain whose head size is below like the 10th percentile, you need to be wary about alcohol exposure. And so especially below 10th percentile. okay. 10th percentile, and especially if it's below 3rd percentile. Now, there are some other things that do cause small head circumference at birth, but as an international adoption parent, any of those factors that would have caused that small head circumference at birth is going to be a red flag anyway, whether it's alcohol or some other reason. So I advise prospective parents to look at birth weight, but most importantly, look at the head circumference. Now, the difficulty is a lot of the agencies don't provide you with head circumference, and so that's that's a question you have to ask. Mm-hmm. Well, and it gets Can even get more complicated because people often um, don't uh, measure head circumference the correct way, but uh, but all of that is something that can be done. You can uh, make certain yes. that they, or yes. you can try to make certain. All right, so we know head circumference, birth weight to a, a, a less degree, but uh, head circumference. Anything else that uh, international adoptive, pre-adoptive parents might want to be want to consider. Sure. Now, looking, continuing with growth, what you want to do is because in most cases, babies available for international adoption are at least 8 to 12 months at the very least of mm-hmm. age. You rarely get younger children. Sometimes you do. But you can look at the growth patterns since the baby was born. And what you want to look at is, first of all, has the baby had any kind of catch-up growth? That is, once he got out of that negative intrauterine environment, did his weight accelerate so that he's moved up into the normal range of growth for his current Mm -hmm. age? That's a very positive sign. That's good. However, if the child has continued to be below the third percentile, or even worse, has fallen further and further away from the third percentile, that's a bad sign. Again, you can't attribute that specifically to alcohol, but any there are multiple factors that could cause that, but any of them, again, would be a red flag. Now, okay. complicating this, did, oh, I thought you were going to ask something. No, no. Complicating this further is the poor environment in which these children find themselves, the neglectful environment in a lot of international situations Um, can also cause them to fall further and further off the growth chart. So you see there are multiple factors here, and um, they all have to be evaluated together. Mm -hmm. The one way to try to figure out, you know, know, the, the good from the bad, essentially, is looking at 
the growth patterns for weight compared to the growth pattern for the head size for the child? Is it symmetrical or asymmetrical? Now, symmetrical means both the head and the uh, weight are both growing along similar patterns. But if the weight is growing well, but the head is getting smaller in proportion to weight, that's a really bad sign. All right. So this is this would be yeah, information. I'm not sure I'm takes... being clear here. This is hard. No, yeah, no, you were being very clear. Uh, okay. We're talking about a child at, uh, at post birth, obviously, and right. uh, you've got information on this child. So you could ask for uh, a to find out where the child falls. Uh, now, sometimes the uh, 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 these measurements over time have not been taken, but a parent could ask. For currently, it would still be helpful, it sounds like, to ask yes. for the current weight of the child, and you could compare it to the norms of that country, the current mm-hmm. weight of the child, and see where that falls on the on the growth chart compared to where the child's head circumference falls on the growth chart. And if they are both small, or, or both large, I suppose you wouldn't be worried at all, but if they were both small, that just might be an indicative of a small child. But if the body has caught up or is uh, uh, is within norms, and but the head circumference proportionally is still uh, in the low percentiles, and the, the one you keep giving is below ten or and certainly below three. Then that's a sign of concern. Am I summarizing correctly? You did a very good job. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So Perfect. basically, what you're looking for is are the head and weight percentiles in proportion. Okay. Excellent. That's a great thing. That's something that people actually can get. Um, that usually that information is available. Excellent. Okay. And before we leave international adoption, anything else that uh, would be helpful there? Uh, no, you know, from a practical sense, as to what, as far as the information you can gather, uh, and then I always, you know, if possible, uh, ask families to try and get a picture of the child. And of course, we can look at the facial features that way. But again, uh, that varies as to if you can even do that or not. Right. Yeah. Although usually nowadays that is something that is yeah. is available. All right. Now for domestic adoption, uh, mm-hmm. the distinction obviously is that usually, although not always, uh, usually a match has taken place between the expectant woman. She has chosen, in most cases, a family. Um, and either they or their adoption agency will have uh, the ability to talk with this woman. Any specific suggestions? You made a great suggestion earlier to specifically ask, um, uh, in the month before you knew you were pregnant, did you drink beer, wine, wine cooler, liquor, daiquiris, hurricanes, whatever, right. hard lemonade? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to correct you just a little bit there. Oh, okay, yes, If correct. you say... That's called a closed-ended question, did you drink, and the answer yes or no. You have uh-huh. to ask an open-ended question. So you say, how much, how, how much, how many beers, how much wine, how much liquor. You want to avoid yes or no questions. So oh, you want to great. ask how much. That's called an open-ended question, and that gives you much better and much more accurate information. Okay, that's a great suggestion. And I said that inadvertently. I didn't. I didn't say that correctly. You're right because I said, 
Right. So the question would be, in the month before you knew you were pregnant, how much, uh, and, and perhaps even asking it individually, how much beer did you drink? How much wine did right. you drink? And giving a point for them to answer? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Now, the other factor that correlates with this and is it, it's a significant predictive factor is tobacco. So you ask the same question, in the month before you knew you were pregnant, how many cigarettes did you smoke? And why is that? Uh, it, well, partly that would give you an indicator of, of any potential impacts from tobacco, but you, it, would it also indicate a more likelihood to drink? Where, did I read that into what you were saying? Yes, or no? it okay. is a significant predictor factor, uh, predictive factor, yes. So if they're smoking mm-hmm. cigarettes, they're much more likely to be drinking alcohol. Now, if they say they didn't smoke at all, it doesn't rule out alcohol use, but right. it is, you know, there is a correlation there. Fascinating. Okay. So we have the specific question and to ask, and we can ask about tobacco as well. Anything else uh, that would help uh, uh, domestic adoptive parents get a feel? Well, prenatally, that's about it. You can, if you've got the obstetric records, you can look at, you know, they've probably done ultrasounds. So you've got growth, you know, you've got growth information. Again, you can look at uh, fetal weight and fetal head circumference, the same kind of thing we were talking about before. But actually, you're not going to find out much more until the baby is born. Now, one of the things that many parents try to rely on is urine toxicologies. They say, well, this woman's doctor has been doing urine toxicologies, and they've all been negative, so, you know, she's not drinking. Urine toxicologies do not look at alcohol. Uh, they measure use of, you know, the illicit drugs. You can even measure cotinine, which is the metabolite of tobacco. But uh, most urine toxicologies do not include looking for alcohol. And, in fact, alcohol stays in the urine such a short period of time that the likelihood of getting a positive urine for alcohol is extremely low. So urine toxicologies are of no use for ascertaining this. Yeah, that makes very good sense. Um, and it, it, yeah. uh, and to say nothing of that, that oftentimes, um, well, not often, in some cases um, the match is made uh, later in the pregnancy, and so that, that would not even be something that they would have access to because a woman may not have had prenatal care. Right. Well, right. it comes up at delivery. If a woman has no prenatal care, a hospital is going to do a, a urine toxicology at the time of delivery. Mm-hmm. But if it's negative, it doesn't mean she hasn't been drinking. And at birth, uh, it, obviously, if the child is uh, born dependent or if the child is born with uh, drugs in their system that would be an, an indicative of drug exposure. I mean, obviously, but uh, is there anything indicative at birth of alcohol exposure? No. Now there are, is some work being done. People are doing blood alcohol levels on the cord blood, but in a general situation, you know, nobody's going to be doing that. Uh, it's a possibility, but uh, physician—that's just not a routine medical. Well, Plus, it would, it would only be indi- it would only be an indicator if she was drinking X number of hours before birth. Right. 
Right. So it's yeah. really of, of little practical use. Now, in right. looking at the newborn, some of the same things we talked about before, you want to look at growth. What is the birth weight, the length, and the head circumference? And again, if any of those things fall below third percentile, you want, you know, there is concern. Um, and, you know, some babies, if the mother was a heavy drinker, the baby will show some kind of withdrawal from the alcohol, irritability, you know, that kind of thing. But that's very unusual. In most cases, a lot of these babies, what you have to look at is more their neurological functioning. And the best thing for prospective adoptive parents is to look at the ba- how the baby responds to them when they pick the baby up. Um, one of the key things you can look for is muscle tone. Alcohol, heavy alcohol exposure will cause, or even lighter alcohol exposure, can produce hypotonia, poor muscle tone in the infant. Um, Muscle tone is not necessarily strength, but it's kind of the give and take, so that, you know, when you pick up a baby, uh, normally, uh, even a newborn infant, and you're holding him under his armpits, you'll feel the baby give back. You know, he'll he'll mm-hmm. give you some kind of feedback. Uh, you'll feel his arms tense or whatever, and he'll respond. Uh, a baby who has been exposed to alcohol, when you pick the baby up, it almost feels like he's going to slide through your hands. It's like picking up just like a 10-pound sack of sugar. Uh, it just doesn't give you it- any kind of feedback. It's a floppy baby, and, and you've, you've held right. a baby. It, it, it's you can you know the distinction. It's uh, you describe yeah. it well. The baby's not giving. It's just it's a floppiness about the baby. But but alcohol exposure is not the only thing that causes that. But that would be no a, no no yeah. no. It's not. But but it's one of the things that causes that. So right. You know you're not going to make a diagnosis. But what you're looking for, if you pick up a baby and you find it's a floppy baby, then you have to ask questions. You know, what are the other reasons that the baby could be floppy? Is he premature? Uh, Did he have uh, a hard time, you know, through birth? Uh, So there are several other issues that have to be addressed, but uh, it's still, it's a red flag to ask more questions. Mm -hmm. And is APGAR score an an, an indicator of anything? A child who has the, the, the scoring that they do immediately, uh, for all newborns uh, immediately after birth, uh, and they rank them on a, I don't even remember, is it a 10-point scale? 10-point scale, yeah. It's it's yeah. a ranking of 1 to 10, and there are two APGAR scores. The first one is given at one minute, and the second one is given at five minutes after birth, and it looks at respiratory rate, heart rate, um, uh, muscle tone, uh, activity of the baby, and color. So there are five points. Now, just for an example, if the baby at one minute his heart rate is above 100 beats per minute, he gets two points. If it's less than one, uh, uh, less than 100 beats per minute, he gets one point. And if there's no heartbeat, he gets zero. And so you go through each of these five points, and you end up with an APGAR score, of, uh, and the perfect score is 10. Um, anything above seven or so, you know, seven and above is normal. However, APGAR scores can be very subjective, and uh, it depends. Sometimes you can get variance between 
people all giving the Apgar scores to the same baby. And so you have to be careful. In practice, if Apgar scores are really low, that is a warning sign for parents. But there's nothing in Apgar scores that are specifically related to alcohol exposure. So Apgar scores are not going to be of much use. Right. It just would be of, of use. It could also just be a child who had a difficult labor, a difficult birth. Right. And right. Uh, and be more in, in, indicative of that. All right. Now, again, so, if you have a child with low APGAR scores, you have to be concerned about what did happen and are there chances for cerebral palsy. I mean, the APGAR scores are useful, it's just they don't apply very well to alcohol exposure. Yeah, gotcha. No, I understand. That's a good okay. distinction. All right. So now we've talked about how we can determine uh is best in, it's a very inexact science uh is right. to try because we're trying to determine something that is unknown. it's it's known it's just hidden from you um so we've talked about ways to do that now let's move into what is the uh so a child has been exposed let's say and I'd like to to expand this. I want to first talk about alcohol, but then I'd also uh, like to make sure we have time to touch on exposure to other drugs. What is the uh, long-term uh, risk factors? To, what's the impact of alcohol? We all automatically assume, I think a lot of us do, that children who are exposed to alcohol will have what we classically think of as fetal alcohol, spect- uh, fetal alcohol syndrome, mm-hmm. FAS. Um, how impacted are children going to be if they are exposed to alcohol in in pregnancy? <laughs> well, it's that's why. Is that, they the, talk is that the sixty-four million dollar question? Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, right. <laughs> now, the worst example is full-blown fetal alcohol syndrome. It is the most common cause of intellectual disabilities, that is, mental retardation, in the United States, as far as. Uh, from a preventable perspective. So we know that FAS can cause significant cognitive delays, mental retardation. However, the great majority of children with alcohol exposure have normal cognitive functioning. And I actually have children who have been exposed to alcohol and have IQs of 125, 135, but they have significant neurocognitive disabilities or neurodevelopmental disabilities. And those disabilities fall into three arenas. The first is neurocognitive functioning. And I'll give you an example of each of these in a minute. The second is adaptive behaviors. And the third is self-regulation. Now, what does all that mean? Adaptive behaviors is taking basically cognitive information and, you know, using information in your daily life. And a good example of that is understanding money and counting money. Uh, That's an adaptive behavior that very often is uh, impaired in children who have been affected by alcohol. They can be quite bright. I have a young lady I'm working with right now. Uh, who is in college, but she, for the life of her, does not understand money and cannot count out money. You know, that's very abstract. Mm -hmm. Uh, Telling time, she cannot tell time looking at the face of a normal clock. She has to have the, 
you know, the electronic di- digital mm-hmm. readout. And even then doesn't quite get the concept of time. But she's in college. So she's she's bright. But th- those kinds of adaptive living skills just aren't there. The second is self-regulation. <clears throat> the ability to regulate your behavior, to respond appropriately. Uh, so we speak of the children often as being dysregulated so that they uh, are not able to uh, for example, uh, if they'll see a truck coming, but they'll cross the street right in front of the truck anyway, because the message that 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 visual image of the truck doesn't hit the brain in a way that tells them to stop walking, and so you get into self-regulation problems, which is uh, how a lot of children uh, die through accidental deaths. Uh, a lot of children who have been affected by alcohol exposure. And the third area, and probably the most profoundly affected across the entire spectrum, is the neurocognitive functioning, and a good example of that is executive functioning, the ability to plan and complete a task, to take information and use it so that it controls and guides your behavior. Uh, and uh, when I'm working with audiences and giving talks, I, I take them through a series of executive functioning tasks that helps explain that. Um, for example, if I said, you know, I'm thinking of a number between one and a thousand, find out what it is by asking me questions that could be answered yes or no. Uh, if you think about how you would approach that, most likely you're thinking, well, I would start, the most common first question is, is it above 500 mm-hmm. or is it below mm-hmm. 500? And then if they say, yes, it's above 500, the next most common question is, is it above 750? And you narrow it down. So what you do is you have a lot of options and you use this pathway, this plan to narrow your options until you find out what the number is. That's executive mm-hmm. functioning. A child with poor executive functioning, you say, I'm thinking of a number between 1 and 1,000, and they'll look at you and say, is it 89? You know, so there are lots of different ways to to look at this, but that is essentially what executive functioning is. Now, if you put all this together, self-regulation problems, adaptive living problems, poor executive functioning, what many of the children look like are children with ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, because they're dysregulated, they're impulsive, and we have a, a new study that just came out that shows that 74% of children with within the fetal alcohol spectrum, 74% do meet criteria for ADHD. But it's a different kind of ADHD, and it requires different therapeutic approaches. Huh. Because the typical pro, because there are obviously many, uh, many, many causes. Uh, are right. potential causes for ADHD. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, and only uh, and um, uh, alcohol and drug exposure is only one of them. So, but so the so the way of dealing with it is different. The, the more effective way of dealing with it. Correct. And <laughs> what happens is, you know, in most cases, you jump to Ritalin right. You know, a doctor has put the child on Ritalin, and the child just gets worse. And there are 
basically comes down to the Ritalin is treating the wrong part of the brain for a child who's been alcohol exposed. Yes. Now, the reality yes. is most alcohol-exposed children with these problems have been exposed to drugs and tobacco also, which affects a part of the brain that Ritalin does work on. So, see, it gets very, very complex. And yeah, that's really why that's why you need a good, full evaluation and treatment plan that looks at all factors and not just what I tell parents. You have to look beyond the behaviors you see to try to understand the source of those behaviors. Oh, this is fascinating. Um, I, we are uh, going to. We will not have time to do what you and I had talked about at the beginning because I have gone way. I was wondering way. how you were going to manage this. Yes, I'm not going to manage it because I got <laughs> totally. Uh, those our listeners who are used to uh, who are listening to the show all the time know that this doesn't happen to me very often. I usually have an outline that you know it's a rough outline, but we follow it. But I have uh, I went off script here because I was so fascinated with what we were talking about earlier in specific, uh, the really specific examples of, of of what to ask and how to get it. I have never heard any. I've never and, and I've been at this for a long time. I've never heard anybody be as specific and as helpful. So I spent longer there. I will. Uh, I, I very much would love to have you back on again to talk about uh, just in general raising a child who has been exposed because I think that that's the the that's important mm-hmm. what protect what sure. things can we do uh, but we will not have time as you as you now realize <laughs> we will not have time to get that so I will uh, once we're off air uh, we are I'm, I'm going to I'm going to tinker with our, our upcoming schedule and see what I can do because I okay. we obviously have left people. Uh, hanging. However, we do have time uh, to make sure I go back to talk about, we've talked about how alcohol affects children long term. Uh, but uh, we, and here, and the darndest thing is that, that often children are exposed to more than just one thing. Tobacco, you've just mentioned that tobacco and alcohol use go to, often go together. And then we also have, and drug use, quite frankly, often accompanies alcohol use as well. But if we could separate it, it are there mm-hmm. distinctions of how uh, tobacco and other uh, and, and other drugs uh, affect a child long term that would be distinguishable from how alcohol affects children long term. Well, physiologically, the tobacco, the exposure to methamphetamine, cocaine, you know, the other drugs act on a different part of the brain. It's called the prefrontal cortex, and that's the regulatory center of the brain. And so what you get is children who have been exposed to these substances have significant dysregulation also and often can look, when you just see their behaviors, uh, it can look quite similar to what we've described about alcohol. The difficulty is it's very nice to be able to talk and, you know, about each one of these drugs. But the reality is if a child's mother has been using cocaine, heroin, you name the illegal drug, including marijuana, it is highly likely she's also used alcohol. And in our studies, uh, about 85% of women who are using illegal drugs also are using alcohol. So what you get for parents is a child whose behavior may be off the wall. You're not going to be able to separate out what's due to the alcohol, what's due to the illegal drugs, but you're going to have a very complex problem that, again, is going to take 
a, a high-level psychological, neuropsychological evaluation, which is the way we function in our center. We have a whole team of psychologists, physicians, therapists that work with the family to figure out what's really going on with the child from a brain-based perspective and then develop a treatment plan that addresses that. So, you know, um, in the short time we have, uh, I would just say that the clinical picture of the prenatally exposed child uh, for the illegal drugs is quite similar to what we've talked about for alcohol. Not exactly, but it's it's quite similar. Now, you what should be aware you mentioned. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. It should be mentioned. You mentioned ADHD and the multiple causes. Um, there is some research that shows that b- besides genetic ADHD, the most common cause that we know of of ADHD beyond genetics is tobacco smoking during pregnancy. So wow. that's just an example of of what tobacco can do, and it acts on that prefrontal cortex that I mentioned before, the front part of the brain. Uh, this is very usually when I talk with groups, I've got lots of pictures, and and so this <laughs> is very hard over the telephone. I don't want to confuse people, but well, let me that, ask a question then. Uh, if it, we see the rates of at least diagnosed ADHD increasing, and yet <laughs> rates of tobacco use are decreasing. So how does that jive? How do those two facts work out? Well, first of all, I would question the issue about ADHD and how much of it is truly ADHD. The majority of kids that we get referred to our clinic are referred with diagnoses of ADHD. A good number of them, however, once we evaluate them, do not have ADHD. They have other forms of dysregulation and do not meet criteria for ADHD, which then sets them on a different therapeutic pathway. Mm-hmm. Folks are very fast to jump to ADHD when, in fact, they, the child does not meet the diagnostic criteria. And that kind okay. of point is important because it affects treatment. Yeah, I was going to say it's important because it affects treatment, and uh, you know that would be why. And, and we have time for one last question. And since we we got an email on this question, I do want to get it in there, um, where a uh, birth mother has acknowledged to uh, smoking marijuana, but uh, does not like alcohol, didn't use alcohol, or, or mm-hmm. that's the information she's giving. Um, and they did not uh, once a week is all they were the the email indicates that she smoked uh marijuana once a week they didn't give any information about how much she smoked mm-hmm. um is there anything that you can say specific as to what your research has shown on uh how marijuana alone might impact a child okay the difficulty is there's no immediate effect of marijuana use on pregnancy outcome. It doesn't affect prematurity, low birth weight, any of those kinds of things we usually talk about. The, but what we do see is long-term, marijuana does appear to affect executive functioning in the exposed child. And there are published studies that show long-term up into adolescence, long-term impact of marijuana is on executive functioning, the ability to plan and complete a task, which, of course, affects behavior and learning. So very briefly, there is an an impact long-term, 
but it is it doesn't have the acute effects that the other illegal drugs do. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I just wanted to make sure I got that in. Well, thank you so much <laughs> for being our guest today, and I am sorry that we did not get to all that I had hoped, but we certainly covered a lot, and I am very thankful for what we did cover today. Uh, to get more information about Dr. Ira Chasnoff and his work, and I am sure everybody is going to want to do that, you can go to the following website, NTI Upstream. NTI Upstream.com. I'd like to take this moment to thank two more of the gold sponsors for creating a family and remind you that it is through their generous support that we can bring you this show and, uh, and, and all the resources that we provide. Children's Connection is an adoption agency with offices throughout Texas providing domestic infant adoption, embryo donation adoption, home studies, and post-adoption support to families throughout the United States. We also have Nightlight Christian Adoptions with offices in California, Colorado, and South Carolina, and adoption programs throughout the world, uh, as well as a domestic infant program and their Snowflakes Embryo Adoption Program. Thank you so much for being our guest today, and I will see you all next week. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> all right, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations.